fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Steve Hodel, um, thank you for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be with you. Now that brings us to you. Um, on your uh, research and writing your books, like uh, when you started, uh, what, what first of all the Black Dahlia? Um, what brought you to writing about Black Dahlia? Was it your father, or was it something else? Yeah, well, uh, of course, I had heard. The only thing I knew about the Black Dahlia back uh, back then was that it was a famous unsolved murder case from the forties. Uh, when I went through the police academy, they had photographs shown uh, of the crime itself because it was such a, uh, a famous, infamous, I guess, uh, crime, L.A. crime. And uh, But I didn't even know the, the victim's name, Elizabeth Short. All I knew it was a famous cold case from the 40s. And I, as a young homicide detective, was interested in the 60s and the, you know, the present, not the past. Yeah. So I really knew nothing about it, and, and, and it came to me. So long after I retired, I was, what, 14 years into retirement, uh, and uh, my father's death, I flew down. I'm sitting there with uh, uh, June, his, his widow, <laughs> and um, she brings out a small book, a photo book album, and it's only like three by five inches. And she says, I think your father would want you to have this to belong to him. I open it up and I'm going through and there are photographs and there are photographs of us boys, there are photographs of my mother, a number of photographs by a, a photographer by the name of Man Ray. I don't, are you familiar with who he was? He was a famous surrealist photographer and very close friend of my father's and uh, became quite famous, uh, lived in Paris most of his life and uh, his, his, his stuff sang in the Getty and, and uh, selling for a couple of hundred thousand dollars. So he mm. became quite fa- famous in his uh, late in his later years. Uh, back then he was kind of just starting out and, and lived in Hollywood for ten years and was very close to my father. He was our family photographer. Anyway, there were photographs uh, of, of family members, uh, my grandparents, and then I opened up and I came to a photograph of a nude woman reclining their eyes closed. And I turned to June and I said, June, who is this? She says, uh, I don't know, somebody your father knew from a long time ago. Well, it, it, it looked like, and to this day I don't quite know why Black Dowdy came to my mind, but it did. And I think it was probably, they did it in 1975, they had a television movie called Who is the Black Dahlia? And uh, Lucy Arnaz played the Dahlia. And, uh, the photograph looked exactly like that, so that might have been my source on that. But for whatever, and it just comes, to, you know, kind of floats in and floats out, black dahlia. But I didn't think much of it. 
And then a couple of days later, I'm on the telephone to Tamar, my half-sister, uh, George being both our, the father to both of us. Yeah. She's in Hawaii. She's in Hawaii. She was the victim of the incest. And uh, we're talking about the great man's passing and uh, what a remarkable life he led and stuff. And out of the blue, she says, well, you know, Steve, he was, uh, he was suspected of being the Black Dahlia. And I said, what, what are you talking about, Tamar? I said, what? Well, we had only had maybe 15 minutes of conversation in 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, she after the after she was sexualized and and uh, the trial and all of that, she kind of spun out of control and got into drug, sex, rock and roll, San Francisco, uh, kind of the original Mother Earth hippie, yeah, uh, and, and all of that. So, so we had very little contact. She would occasionally call me when she, you know, maybe she was arrested for possession of marijuana, she needed some bail or something. But other than that, I just had no contact with her. So we're talking, and she, and she says this, and I said, "Where is this coming from, Tamar?" She says, "Well, that's what the police told me when I when I was, you know, in detention. They taking me to and from court on the incest trial. They said that we think that uh, your father, telling her, we think your father was uh, the Black Dahlia suspect, and they have a lot of reasons for it." So I'm thinking, "No, there's no way." I said, "You know, I, for whatever reason, as I had mentioned, I was." Uh, probably knew my thought. I knew my father better than anyone. I was like, closest to him and had more contact with him than any of his other children. And uh, I was aware of his, you know, sexual obsession and some of his other eccentricities. But, but killer? No way. You know, he he couldn't have done that. And, and so, um, so that was the second kind of blinking red light. Was what Tamar said. So I start looking into the case, and I find out her name's Elizabeth Short, and I start getting the details. And the, like, I'm divorced at that time, and my girlfriend's in L.A., and I'm having her send me up all of the newspaper clippings and articles from the five different newspapers in L.A. on the original case. And uh, there's a massive amount of material. So she's sending me up, and, and one of the articles she sends me is, I look at the front page, uh, of a newspaper, and it's well. What happened was the, the killer, and we probably need to get into a little description of what happened on the Dahlia. But after the killing, the killer started sending in um, uh, written messages, taunting the police, "Catch me if you can! I'm going to Mexico. I'll give myself up for twenty thousand dollars." All sorts of kind of disguised writing, cut and paste notes, like ransom notes, that sort of thing. Hmm. And one of these uh, says, it said, turning myself in on January 29th, had my fun at the police, and he finds it Black Dahlia Avenger. And this, of all of them, this is the only one that's undisguised. Uh, handwriting. And I look at it, this is my father's handwriting. And I, you know, I mean, you know, you know, you know your parents' handwriting, your listeners know their parents' handwriting, and I know my father's. And I said, wait a minute, this can't be. There's got to be some other explanation here. And I said, maybe is he pretending to be? What's going on here? Yeah. And I do more research, uh, heard research, and I discover that the killer was a, was a surgeon, that the body was expertly uh, bisected at the waist in a special procedure that was taught in medical schools in the 30s called a hemicorpectomy. It wasn't. This wasn't a butcher, or a, you know, uh, this was a skilled surgeon, and the and LAPD uh, 
believe that a doctor had done it. So that was another blinking red light. And I thought, oh, yes. So there's no way. Well, I'll, I'll be able to show that he had nothing to do with this. So at that point, I realized I need to relocate back to L.A. And, you know, I can't do an absentee investigation on this. So I relocated back to L.A. in 2000 or 2001, and I would start my investigation. I would do interviews. I would do contacts with all sorts of uh, individuals. Ultimately, I, uh, without we, we just don't have time to go through all the details, but basically I was able to develop uh, a strong case. I went in secret to the district attorney's office, presented it, uh, with the photo exhibits, and I had handwriting analysis um, done by a handwriting expert and uh, confirmed that the handwriting was, in fact, George Hodel's, independent of my own identification. Um, and, you know, basically what I was doing was, you know, I was, I, I, it was a two-pronged investigation into the mysterious life of my father uh, that I knew little about and also into his potential uh, connection to the, the, the murder itself. As I proceeded, I discovered that uh, LAPD believed that the, the, there were a number of murders from, 19, from the beginning of the 1940s to 1950, about nine or ten, uh, the L.A. lone uh, woman murders. And, and they were, LAPD believed that many of them were connected to each other. Uh, at least four or five they listed. Well, by the time I was through, I felt nine or ten were connected. Um, so I present this in secret to the, my findings to the uh, DA. He reviews it for a couple of months, comes back and says, you know, based on your investigation, he says, I would file two counts of murder against your father were he still alive. I would file the Black Dahlia Elizabeth Short murder and I would file a second murder, which was known as the lipstick murder, where the killer actually wrote a, a, a lipstick uh, message uh, a, uh, on the body itself, on the new body, posed it in a vacant lot, just like he had the Dahlia. Hmm. He says, the others are interesting, he says, but not quite enough for a filing. He says, but, but based on your investigation, I would file, and I believe I could easily win it in a, in a jury, with a jury. So with that, uh, I decided, okay, I'll, I'll go public, and I'll, I'll you know, and I'll, I'll write this up and, and, and reveal it to the public. I had attempted to meet with LAPD for the six months prior to sit down and lay it all out to them, and they kept putting me off and putting the DA and I off together and saying, you know, we don't have time for this. So ultimately. We ran out of time. The book came out, and and it was a you know very controversial. A, a lot of you know press on it. You know, Dateline did a 48 hours. Uh, Dateline did a piece on it. 48 hours did a piece, and, and num- there've been about six or eight different hour shows on my investigation. And uh, so that was in '03 when the book, came, the first version came out. Well, that what happened then was it blasted open uh, the secret DA files. Uh, and what, what happened was uh, Steve Lopez of the LA Times, uh, I had given him a kind of a heads up on this and saying, you know, this, is, this will be coming out, and uh, because he was a watchdog kind of guy, and I thought he would be a good guy to go to. 
So he goes to the DA and says, hey, there's this hotel. He says his father's a black guy killer, you know, all of this stuff. And the DA says, well, I'm not spending a, a, a dime of uh, county money on this. But he says, there is a box in the vault on the dahlia if you want to take a look at that. <laughs> Lopez says, I'd love to. So he gives him this box, which, he's, which the DA has never looked at. And Lopez carries it upstairs, sits in the room, opens up the box, takes out a file, and out falls a photograph of Dr. George Hill Hodel. Now, this file's been locked away for 55 years. Nobody's seen it since 1950. And uh, uh, he says, whoa, so he was a suspect. And he goes through, and he just, what does he discover? He discovers that uh, not only was he a suspect, he was the prime suspect, and that uh, L.A. And, and the D.A.'s investigators back in 1950, three years after the murder, uh, went out to the, uh, picked George Hodel up, took him into the Hall of Justice for questioning. And while he was there, they broke into the, this Mayan temple we were still living in, in Hollywood, and bugged it. They basically put hard microphones in the walls and uh, in the living room and in the bedroom and uh, ran hard wires, connected them to the Pacific telephone lines, ran that to Hollywood Police Station two miles away, set up a recorder, and listened 24-7 for the next 42 days, tape recorded all the conversations. This isn't a phone bug. This is actual hard live conversations. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, they got a lot of damning statements and admissions and confessions from Dad. And basically, uh, we don't have to go through all of them, but basically... They also suspected him two, a year and a half before that murder of, of overdosing his secretary, a woman by the name of Ruth Spalding. Mm. And he was, investigated, he was investigated on that as a probable murder investigation. It was listed ultimately as a suicide. They couldn't prove that he did the forced overdose on her. Of pills, they were having an affair, and apparently she was going to reveal some information she had learned about George. Now, this is prior to the Italian murder, so it was either one of the other murders, earlier murders, or uh, the fact that he was performing abortions, which came out in the tape, tape record, secret tape recordings. Or, or who knows, it could have been one of anything. Anyway, she was, uh, she overdosed, and he took her into the hospital. She was comatose. She died 20 minutes later. So um, basically... <coughs> uh, there were a lot of admissions he made. Uh, one of them was um, that were tape recorded. He said, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they can't prove it now. My secretary's dead, which referred to Ruth Spaulding, who probably could have identified him as, as knowing and been acquainted with Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. Uh, the police reports verified that he did know Elizabeth Short, that they were having an affair or at least were acquainted uh, prior to her death. And uh, there's a whole massive amount of he. He talks about performing abortions. He talks about uh, uh, the actual killing of Ruth Spalding. Talk describes taking her to the hospital. He describes putting a pillar over her head. Um, and he says, I think the police may have found out about it. Um, I think they figured it out. And he goes on and on with all, all sorts of incriminating statements. So he's about to be arrested by. LAPD and the DA's investigators in 1950 uh, in uh, March 
and suddenly he takes off. He's probably warned by one of his insiders. Takes off and leaves the country, splits, and um, literally leaving LA, uh, the DA's investigators with their microphones up the wall. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they, they pull out, and um, anyway, all very damning because, you know, Steve O'Dell could talk for 20 hours about all of the evidence and connections, but it's still Steve O'Dell saying it. So but here you have independent confirmation by uh, official police reports that he was the prime suspect and he confessed to it. So and they had the, these were actually transcripts they had uh, of the uh, tape recordings. So that obviously, you know, and that, that came out in a later updated chapter in my book, and I built on that, and um, then new new, new uh, witnesses came forward that uh, indicated uh, that they knew all along that he, he was the killer, and, and just at this point, we're way beyond any reasonable doubt in regards to um, him being the the Black Dahlia killer, and and the other probably the other eight or nine murders. So, so what you've got is a serial killer in yeah. Los Angeles operating for 10 years. Her murder and the other ones that you sort of associated with it, was there was there a common bond as in like, uh, so if George Hodel did it, like you know a lot of serial killers or chain killers <laughs> had um, the same, like they wanted a certain type of girl or certain look, certain hair, certain right. size. Yeah. Was there any of that with these or, or was it just random? Well, that's a good question. But, you know, it's what I call the, the CSI effect. Um, uh, a lot of people say, well, but, but, but one was blonde and one was brunette, so it couldn't be the same suspect. Or they say one was young and one was old, or, or he never, you know. Uh, it's ridiculous, uh, especially in George Hodel's case. He, he was all over uh, the radar screen in regards to his M.O. and his signatures. But there were some common... Uh, linked links, and, and probably one of the strongest was that of the nine murders I talk about, six of them, uh, the killer wrote uh, a taunting message either on the victim's property or mailed it to the police, uh, leaving messages when he wrote on a body. And all, you know, this unique handwriting, hand printing, uh, many of the victims, many of these messages were. Uh, identified as being written by George Odell by my handwriting expert. Um, so that's very unusual. I mean, I have never had in the 300 cases I investigated, I never had one where they actually wrote a message or a note. So that's a very unique MO or signature. You've got it on six of them. Uh, the thing to understand about, and this carries through to the later crimes uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area and other, other locales, he was an urban terrorist, so his his mo his 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 real motive for uh, the crimes uh, was uh, basically to hold a city hostage, he, you know, and and scare a city. He was a dad was ultimately I would discover a, not only was he a misogynist who hated women, but he was a misanthrope. He hated humanity, and his way of of it was to get paid. You know what he demanded to be above the fold on page one in the newspapers, and he did it in Los Angeles, and and managed to stay above uh, the fold for many of his crimes. 
He did it in the San Francisco Bay Area as Zodiac, and um, he did it in Chicago, uh, Three Crimes in Chicago, which I also go into in, in the sequel. So basically, you know, you can't you can't use a textbook on George O'Dell. He was, you know, even though there there's a massive amount. I when I get into the Zodiac crime, they actually list 31 major MO signatures that are identical between uh, the uh, Black Dahlia Avenger, George O'Dell, and Zodiac. Uh, very unique, very distinct. If you get two or three of these, uh, you begin to look at it as possibly connected, but 31 is just, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. Right. Anyway, so that, to answer your question, um, it's not the victim type that's common. It's the it's the it's other actions he did, and and there's a whole theme that we probably don't have time to get into, which is uh, his whole theme and uh, on all of this was, and I go into it in detail. It's murder. What I call murder is a fine art. Um, he's he's taking uh, items from literature. He's taking music in his crimes. He's using uh, art. Uh, literature, film, and he's tying them all into his killings, incorporating them, and it's just it's it's mind-boggling. Uh, I'll give you one example in uh, to start with. In, in Los Angeles, one of the earlier pre-Dahlia murders, uh, there's a radio show, uh, and it's in July of 1943, and it's called the White Rose Murder, and it's. They had suspense theater. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with that. Oh, yeah, yeah. The old-time radio show. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's... Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it, Maureen O'Hara was a, was a young, just starting out as a young star, and she uh, played the lead in this... Uh, uh, there was a there was a story by the by uh, I mean Woolrich, uh, Cornell Woolrich. It's called The White Rose Murders. And they did this radio play... Uh, on air, I think it was a 30-minute. And the story was about a, uh, a killer, a serial killer, who killed four or five times. He goes to a dance hall, he picks up a, a woman, takes her out, kills her, leaves a white rose by the body. And he does this uh, to four or five different victims. Well, two weeks after that aired, uh, George Hodel goes to a ballroom a block from his office, medical office downtown L.A., and um, meets a woman, invites her to he dances with her, charms her. Now, this is a very debonair, young, you know, handsome man, and young doctor, and uh, invites her to Hollywood to show her the scenes. Takes her to a isolated golf course, beats, strangles, and beats her to death. Leaves a white uh, uh, gardenia by the body. And this is two weeks after the airing of the show, and he's following the script almost line by line. And um, that, so that's, you know, that he's, that's kind of gives you what I did. And he goes, he doesn't do this just in, in, in uh, radio, but he does it in all the arts. And there's probably a dozen or 15 different ones that he's taking. He's taking from four or five different films. It's just remarkable. There, there's never, ever been quite an MO quite like it. So, and, uh, so he was pretty serious. He did his job well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, so, what what was it about Black Dahlia that sticks out? Like what, like 
before all of this and your father, why were they still showing pictures like when you were in the police academy, and why was it still something that held the attention of not only the public but the police and other people um, years after? Like, is there something that you've figured out? To like, what, I guess it's that same old question of why do certain crimes stay with? Well, you know, there, there are a couple of reasons that I, I come up with on that. Um, first of all, uh, it's the uh, it got a massive amount back in 1947. Uh, it got a massive amount of publicity. Uh, it was literally headlines for 40 days. And um, uh, it, it went nationwide, but, of course, heavily covered here in Los Angeles by the five or six newspapers of the day. They were vying to outscoop each other on the story. And uh, you've got a beautiful young woman. Uh, you've got the name uh, Black Dahlia. Now, now that, that, the source of that was actually there was a movie called The Blue Dahlia that came out uh, that summer. And uh, it was with Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. It was a noir film that came out. Yeah. So the uh, soldiers, uh, she used to hang out at a soda fountain down in Long Beach, Elizabeth, while she was out here. And uh, she would go in there, and the guys in there would actually call her the Black Dahlia, uh, kind of a spin-off of this movie from Blue Dahlia, even though the Blue Dahlia was actually a bar, not a person. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> they gave her this name, and one of the news guys called the pharmacy and, and got this information. And, came, and so you've got this mysterious black guy, you've got a young, beautiful woman, and then you've got this absolute horror of being, I mean, um, one of the things that made the crime so distinct was the absolute horror uh, inflicted on her. It was a torture murder. Uh, experts estimate it probably took from four to five hours to complete. Um, I won't go into all the details because it's just too gruesome, but Basically, uh, cuttings around the body. The breast was one of the breasts was removed. Um, uh, pieces of flesh were cut and inserted in her privates. Uh, she was bound and tied. There were ligature marks on her feet and her hands and her neck. Uh, uh, she was uh, sexually molested. Um, slow torture. There were cuttings uh, over the body. The mouth was slashed. Actually, it wasn't slashed. That's kind of a, a misrepresentation. It was cut from almost ear to ear with a with a scalpel, um, and then it was but and then it was washed clean, surgically bisected. Uh, the procedure is called a hemicorpectomy, and you you have to go between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. It's the only way you can divide a body without um, sawing through bone. So the, they knew it was a skilled surgeon that did it and that was aware of this. The body was washed clean. It was carefully posed at the, at a, in a vacant lot five miles south of Hollywood. Um, so all of these things came together. Of course, the veteran homicide detectives had never seen anything quite like it, and they were shocked and, and stunned. And um, uh, the newspaper coverage, the, the name, uh, and it's just kind of all everything there to, to make a legend, you know. Yeah. And it was all of this mystery and stuff. In fact, a lot of my opposition, uh, they, they don't want it solved. In other words, they believe that the, the mystery is, is what it's all about. And if you solve it, it's no longer, it doesn't have the 
same allure, I guess you could say. So a lot of my opposition said, you know, we don't want this solved. Don't mess with our myth, you know. Yeah. And so I think it was basically, and it was also the other factor is that it was the last pr big print story before television. In other words, uh, television was just coming in, and uh, this was kind of like the last really big story uh, to come out just before that. So all of these factors came together, I think, to, to make it what it was. And then, of course, hack writers jumped on that and have been promoting it. Some of the horrific photographs are put in books and um, for everybody to see just how much horror, you know, uh, so they, they sensationalized it. Uh, are there any others out there? Like, have you have you read or um, saw any movies or documentaries or anything out there that you sort of um, think think are good work or good good representation of of, of Dahlia and sort of the situation? Uh, I guess the short answer is no. No. Um, the problem is they. The problem is, I mean, ironically, you know, the real story. The real truth of this case is much more, in a way, sensational, much more bizarre than any story you could, you know, than any of these other stories that have been put out there. You couldn't, you couldn't think this story up. You know, the son of the killer grows up to become a homicide detective and solves the case. I mean, the mind wouldn't even go there if you walked into a, a studio with this as a script. Um, they say, get the hell out of here. You know, it's too too bizarre. Uh, but but there it is. And, and uh, there's really no longer, I'm running about 90, 90 to 95%, you know, uh, for conviction. I mean, I, I've proved it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, you know, it kept building on itself. And now with the second volume coming out and, uh, we you know, all of the evidence, that the new evidence that we've turned up, I was I've actually been able to do establish um, items from the from the hotel residence found at the crime scene. I mean, it was actually, there were, I don't know if you're aware of the cement sacks, but I was ap actually able to link some 50-pound cement sacks that were established at being at the Franklin House uh, the week, so-called missing week in, in January of 47 that were used to transport the body to the crime scene and were left next to the body, and LAPD confirms that these were used to transport from an unknown residence. I've actually been able to connect those through original receipts to the to the house. So that's physical, hard physical evidence. We've uh, Cadaver dog has come back positive on uh, human remains, the, the detected human remains at the, from soil samples at the Franklin house. And uh, these have been analyzed uh, and confirmed that they're specific for human remains as opposed to anything else. So it just goes on and on. We just don't have time to, yeah. to document all, all of the new evidence, too. So, so I guess one of the, the points I'm trying to make is that going into the, you know, and, I, and from the conclusion of that investigation on the Dahlia and the other L.A. lone woman murders, I was pulled in from the police reports, actually pulled me into the possibility that, George Hodel could have reinvented himself as as Zodiac in the 60s, and, and started up the same the same MO and the same signatures and stuff. And I wouldn't have even gone there except that 
the DA, the police reports actually have Elizabeth Short investigating Dad in Chicago for some crimes. Uh, and that started me off on that and took me into another huge rabbit hole, which ultimately became Most Evil and now the second book, Most Evil 2, which, you know, basically connect him, in fact, as in Most Evil 1, the first book that came out with Dutton in, in 2009, I looked at. I made a compelling case that George Udell was Zodiac, but I I didn't say case solved. I said, let's do some DNA. Let's take a look at this, and see. You know, let's get a ruling in or ruling out on DNA. Well, they still haven't developed DNA, but uh, confirmed DNA. But anyway, I kept moving, and I said, you know, right now I'm saying, you know, uh, it's a possibility. It's a strong possibility, but I'm not saying the case is solved. Right. So in the last, but the last five years, I've continued working on it, and now I am with a book that came out last week, Most Evil Two. I am saying yes, and we have, and I'm, I'm offering the reasons and the and the proofs. And believe me, my reputation is on the line. I would not come out and say that uh, he is Zodiac unless I felt I had absolutely made the case, and and that's what I've done in the in the new book. Well, Zodiac's a pretty hot subject. I know just um, with some of the other books out, and, and I did a, quite a few interviews in one month, a huge response to it, and uh, there's, there's still quite a bit of um, talk about this. So how has that community reacted to you or your book? Do you think that they're sort of not... Well, well they haven't... First of all, they're not aware of the new... It's just out, so... The book, my new book, was embargoed, so it just came out last week. So I don't think any, hardly anybody has, has even read it yet. So they they don't know what is coming. But basically, I'm offering a signed uh, confession by Zodiac in one of the original things. I've, de I've decrypted. Actually, uh, I didn't do it. A French a Frenchman did it and uh, contacted me, and, and we worked together on it but basically have decrypted one of the original Zodiac ciphers, and it's a signed confession by George Hotel actually admitting to the crime, signing his own name. I mean, this is like, yeah. I can't believe that he would actually do this. You know, I mean, how stupid. But he was. He felt he was, it was one of his weaknesses, you know. I mean, his, his uh, hubris was his, his ultimate undoing. You know, he was a megalomaniac, and he concealed this in a cryptic, uh, language that he thought nobody would ever break the code, right? And this French and this Frenchman has done it, and it leaves no doubt. I mean, you know, uh, he's signed his name, and and for all to see, and the and the document is genuine. So, you know, they're gonna my my critics are gonna have a tough time with this one because, you know, there are five letters, and those letters are H O D E L, and, and I don't know what they're gonna be able to do with that, but. But but the point is that there's that's only part of it. I mean that's the what I call the Rosetta Stone. You know that's the kind of the, in a way you could say as an investigator it's the icing on the cake. But there's a whole lot more to the connection of George Hodel to Zodiac than meets the eye. And again, a lot of it has to do with deconstructing myths. One of them being the, the biggest hurdle I had was for myself to start out was there's no way I started out by saying there's no way that George Hodel could be Zodiac because he was a much younger man. Well, guess what? Once I got into the weeds of it, I discovered 
and got the original police reports and stuff, and suddenly that AIDS discrepancy disappeared. Uh, originally, uh, well, even in the original bullet, they had him 35 to 45. And uh, the most reliable, the best witness of all of them, um, actually uh, was the police officer, um, uh, the, uh, Donald Fook, uh, who who actually uh, saw him leaving the scene of uh, the San Francisco Candy murder, Paul Stein. And uh, he, uh, he's the one that said, and he comes out and says, well, actually, it was a high end of that. He, he was more like 45. Yeah. Well, if you talk to a witness and, and, and he's giving you a scan like that as an investigator, I would say, well, could he have been 47, 48, 49? He's going to say, yeah, he could have been. You know. So you've got that. And then you've got George O'Dell, who was actually 60, but he looked... You know, he could easily pass from mid-40s, mid to late 40s. So suddenly that, you know, that makes that possible as far as the physical and everything else fits. The shoe size is the same shoe size, on and on. And suddenly uh, your description, you know, most people just dismissed it saying he was too old. But in fact, he, he wasn't too old at all. He, he looked young, much younger than he was, and, and the suspect was, in fact, in his late 40s. Uh, a couple more composites came out of Zodiac by a couple of artists who make him actually look in his early 50s. And they're, I don't know if you've seen it, but they're almost picture perfect to George O'Dell, including the glasses. Anyway, so you've got the physical, but that's, again, you know, just uh, that puts it in the ballpark. So, yeah. And, and um, ultimately, uh, in my first book, Most Evil, I present probably the most compelling evidence is again this game playing where Zodiac sends in maps uh, to the police and the press and says you know it has to do with radians and inches along the uh, on the map and stuff and he's, he basically tells and instructs them he says align align the uh, position the compass to uh, true north and so he's instructing well, I, I follow his instructions and basically we come up with uh, the circle, uh, the one line going through his killings in, in the Napa area, uh, in Vallejo, and the other uh, line of this 60-degree radian, 58-degree radian, goes directly through the killings in the Presidio of the Paul Stein Cabbie, and also directly over the grave of, guess who, <laughs> Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, who's buried in Oakland, California, at uh, Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland goes the line goes directly over her grave, and uh, so there's you know there's a whole bunch of uh, and, and then he connects the zodiac is connecting is to the Mikado. And Dad was an expert in the Mikado. He was a radio announcer on on classical music and Gilbert and Sullivan and and it just goes on and on. Too many points. Yeah. And, and, and you know, but but but. Um, you know, so I'm so going. I guess here's the here's the bottom line in regards to Zodiac. Going into my investigation, we've got uh, we've got the Black Dahlia Avenger, who's a serial killer in Los Angeles, who's sending in notes, taunting the police, handwriting, uh, and all of this. Uh, I, you know, we're starting out with a known. We're starting out with a serial killer that's doing all of the same things that Zodiac is doing 20 years later. And it's 
you know, handwriting, I, I include a whole chapter of all, all the samples of my father's handwriting, and I've been, many of the notes, of Zodiac notes, have been confirmed by my expert. I don't, I'm not personally really big on handwriting. Uh, I, I have a problem with it. Uh, I think it's too subjective. Right. Uh, you, you get experts to say, yes, this is definitely him, and this other experts say, no, it's definitely not him. Well, that's not science to me. Yeah. Science is, you know, you yeah. don't get both both answers in science. So I, I, I have a real problem with it. It's okay to use it as long as, you know, you have all of your other evidence to go with it. But, but to use just handwriting for guilt or innocence, no way. You just can't do that. What do you and think, you then? I, I was just going to say, but so if you think he did, um, you know, like the Dahlia and the Shane murders, and then he's up to doing Zodiac, what happened in the in-between times? Because it's not typical for someone that um, has an affinity to murder like this to just stop. It certainly isn't. So You're absolutely right, and he didn't. And one of the crimes that I, I document in uh, Most Evil 1, the first book, uh, is a crime that uh, another part of my father's unusual M.O. and this, again, this murder is a fine art and playing games, uh, I start off my first, my earlier book, uh, Most Evil, with three crimes that uh, I believe he committed in Chicago in the 40s in, and before the before the Dahlia murder. Uh, they were known as the Lipstick Murders, very famous. And there, were, there was a young six-year-old girl by the name of Suzanne and, and uh, two adult women and they were, who were bathtub murders. And these three crimes... Uh, were supposedly solved by a, a young teenager who supposedly confessed to him and was sent speedily to prison, a guy named Bill Hirons, a very famous case. So I didn't really look at these because I figured, well, the case is solved, no need to. But then I discover in the police reports that Elizabeth Short goes back to Chicago, begins investigating these three lipstick murders on her own. This is all documented in the police reports. This isn't something I'm making up and uh, actually sleeps with a number of the newsmen uh, to get information on the killings. And, and, and uh, they admit to it that they were with her and that she was back there investigating these crimes, these three crimes. I'm thinking, what's going on here? Well, at the same time she's doing that, Dad is temporarily away in China. He's, he's over there for supposedly a year and um, while well, she's investigating these crimes. And... Uh, I think what happened was that she communicated, wrote a letter, or said something, or maybe he came back on leave, I'm not sure. Anyway, said something to Dad. Uh, you know, you didn't do the murders in Chicago, did you, jokingly or whatever. Anyway, the next thing we know is she starts running in fear of her life. And Dad unexpectedly comes back from China, uh, quits his job over there with the United Nations, comes back, she starts fleeing, and within a month, she's dead. Now, I believe that, that uh, she found out or discovered something in regards that connected him. But here's the kicker. The, um, her body, so she's tortured. She's, um, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, bisected and, and taken and posed on this lot. And the street that she's posed off of, the killer, uh, I believe, dead, uh, 
posted, and the name of the street that he thought he was on was Degnan, D-E-G-N-A-N, because you come up Degnan and it forks off, and if you go to the right, you're still on Degnan, if you go to the left, you're on, the spot, you're, you're on another street that uh, with a vacant lot, I'm blanking on the name right now, I can't believe I don't, anyway, um, he thought he was on Degnan, he poses the body there, well, what's the name of the little girl in Chicago that was murdered? Degnan. Well, I've never even heard of that name. Anyway, so that's another one of his taunting clues he poses. So you're going to investigate me on Degnan? Okay. So he poses the body off the street, which he thinks is Degnan. Okay, fast forward. The next crime we've got is, has, to answer your question now, is in Manila. Young woman. Her body's nude, bisected, surgically bisected by a skilled surgeon, posed on a vacant lot, eight blocks from my father's house, uh, uh, on a street, it's called because the, the, their most one of their most famous unsolved is called the Jigsaw Murder. What's the name of the street that that body's closed on? Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And I said, no way. You know, there's there's no way that this can be. So that's what pointed me. And, and the Manila killing is is you know it was a surgeon. It was a. Um, there's no question about it. And, and uh, it's a copycat Dahlia murder that occurred in '67. Okay. So you're right. I mean, he did keep on killing. Uh, uh, we have the Riverside murder in '66 of Sherry Jo Bates, which is uh, which is uh, Zodiac connected uh, in '67, and then we come back in '68. We start the murders start in, in in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and um, again, there's the the connections to the the the, the map and, and all of this. It all fits into this very twisted. Um, uh, this was part of his insanity, uh, and it gets it goes gets into surrealism. Uh, the surrealists believe that there was no difference between the dream and the waking state, and and they played that intellectually. Dad really believed it. In other words, he believed that there was no difference between a dream and a, and, and an action you do as you know uh, uh, with your own volition. Uh, so you can kill, you can do anything you want. There is no uh, God. There is no nothing to stop you from doing all of this. And that was his personal insanity. And uh, where the others intellectualized it and played with it, he actually walked the walk and did it. I mean, yeah. He actually went out there and did it. And that's what, what makes him one of the most, I mean, uh, I have by the end of... Um, this book, I've presented 25 different murders that I believe are that he was responsible from 19 basically 1940 to 1970. So almost one one a year, averaging <laughs> one a year. How did that change your relationship with him now? As in, um, so you you've lived and he's passed on, but now that you've done this research and are pretty confirmed about his murder past. Has it changed the way you felt about him now? <laughs> well, I, I've been through every possible emotion in the last 14 years. I've been through every possible emotion you, you, you can imagine. And, you know, I loved my father. I, I loved him and I respected him. And, you know, I, I went through various emotions when I, when I looked at all of the absolute 
horror and how it's affected so many lives. You know, it's not just the victims, but it's their family members. I mean, not knowing, and the, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of uh, people have been affected by this, car- his carnage. You know, uh, I've come to the, I think I've come to the position where it's, I see him as a Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, you know that's uh, that's an easy thing to say, but I, I think he actually really was, um, because in many of the notes, and it, this is interesting because it links him to all of the different crimes. In Los Angeles, he promises he writes a note promising there will be more. Chicago, he writes a note there will be more. In Riverside, he writes a note there will be more, and in San Francisco, in Zodiac, he says there will be more killings. So that's a huge connection there, just in in his his voice. And I see that's the Mr. Hyde inside of him, uh, the monster that's the stronger. And I think the Dr. Jekyll, the good part, who could have, you know, done so much with his talents, uh, was the weaker and was controlled. And, and, and we see this in many of his writings, especially his Zodiac. So, you know, I love my father. I love him to this day. I mean, he created me. His blood is flowing through me right. my gene pool is, is him so there's a part of me that is never going to stop being able to love my father even though he was probably one of the world's most horrific misogynists and misanthropes that's ever walked the planet um, so and I hate the monster inside of him the, the Mr. Hyde but so I'll you know I, I guess you could say I'm kind of emotionally bisected just as Elizabeth was physically bisected you know and I there's nothing I'll ever be able to do to, to mend that or do anything about it. Yeah, I was just thinking that it must have been kind of um, weird to look back at times when you were hanging out and, and being with him, like in the times of San Francisco in the last 10 years. Do you think he continued murdering them? No. I, I suspect, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that probably the 1970 murder was probably his last uh, the, the Paul Stein murder in 69, the cab driver. I mean, I don't know for sure, but he was, you know, I mean, you get, you get to a point where you just, you're too old. I mean, he was 91 <laughs> when he died. Yeah. He was, uh, you know, at, at some point you just, and he, he had a lot of problems in the last few years of his life. Uh, he, he was in a lot of pain. He was having a lot of problems with osteoporosis. He could hardly walk. He needed assistance. So, but he was white hot up until through his 70s, uh, and um, uh, so actually even further because he was fine, you know, until the last five years before his death. So, uh, um, but you know, he, I I could be wrong, but I don't think he killed after 1969 or 70. He had June with him uh, at that point, and she was a she. You know, they were married 30 years, and she was a tremendous. Pu- positive influence on his life. She loved him very much. And uh, uh, I think she probably, you know, helps him control the beast inside, so to speak. And I think it just, I think he just burned up. That part just burned out eventually, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Wow. So that's um, quite a story and um, (laughs) quite a life. Um, (laughs) So uh, now, uh, now your new book has just come out, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, it just it was embargoed, and it's and it's 
and as I say, it's uh, it's a quick read. It's it's uh, what I do is I include a lot of uh, addendum in there, also in addition to the ten chapters. But the the key chapter, of course, is the is chapter ten, which is the decryption of the of zodiac's uh, cipher. And uh, it, it's not one of the now you know you're probably familiar with the the uh, cryptograms, yeah. you know, with the wording and stuff. It's not that. That's uh, you know you can you can play with that and come up with just about any name you want. A uh, number of authors have you know said hey, there's the name and you know they're so it's, it's not that at all. It, it, it's something else that Zodiac wrote that was much more subtle and much more disguised. And uh, uh, so, but it leaves no doubt. I mean, it's believe me, I, I have a reputation at stake, and I wouldn't put it online. <laughs> it was there, so. Well, well you're, but there. you're you're expecting some backlash here because the Zodiac people are very, uh, very oh yeah, very no, no, very no, no, aggressive, you're... and I know that like Gray Smith had you know was behind the movie and the books, um, Thomas Horan. But, there's all those people. So, what, what, <laughs> what are you ready for it? <laughs> well, that I don't get in pissing contests with other yeah. theorists and stuff. You know, they they can present theirs, I present mine. Uh, basically, my judge and jury are my readers, and, and uh, you're not going to convince. They've already got their minds made up on it, either a certain suspect or whatever. So, you're not going to change minds like that. You know, you just they're going to they're going to have a hard time coming up with. I mean, I'm, I tried to come up with an alternate explanation for this. <laughs> I'm pretty good at it, but I haven't been able to yet. But I'm. I'm sure that you're right. That the, some naysayer will say, "Well, here's another explanation." Oh yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. and you can't take it. I mean, again, you can't just take it on that one. You have to take the whole picture. You know, the 31 signatures alone is is you know very damning. I mean, we're we're talking about uh, things as as unique and special as um, you know. Avenger draws a crude drawing. The Black Eye Avenger in the 40s draws a crude drawing of a knife gripping blood and mails it to the press. Zodiac draws a crude drawing of a knife gripping blood and mails it to the press. And, um, you know, things like that that are like, wait a minute, you know, uh, Avenger takes pre-cut clothesline lengths with him on his crimes to use. Zodiac takes pre-cut clothesline with him on his crimes to use, you know, uh, cut and pasted mailings, the voice, the, the voice, the taunting voice is the same. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on. So I'm not just using general, yeah. you know, uh, general uh, MO. I'm using very specifics. I appreciate the work you're doing, and we're glad and uh, and uh, wish you the best and uh, hope to have you again. Okay, Alan, thank you very much. Good to, it's been good talking with you.